The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. We're working on the lights. Let me say thank you to the Intermountain Christian School worship team that was here. I don't know where you all are seated, but thank you for coming and spending time rehearsing and then performing for us, leading us in worship. We appreciate that. Thank you. Pray with me. Lord, we sang that you are worthy. We sang and repeated that you are worthy, worthy, worthy of our lives, worthy of all sacrifice, worthy of our worship, thanks. And we want to exclaim specifically why it is you are worthy, because as it says in Galatians, you are worthy because Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Father, it was your plan to send Christ to the cross, to hang him on a tree, to become a curse for your people. And for that you are worthy of all praise. Son, you are worthy of all praise. For you willingly humbled yourself and came as a man to earth and submitted yourself to that and submitted yourself to death, even death on a cross, bearing a curse that you did not deserve. Worthy are you of praise. We exclaim that today. Worthy. Father, now I pray, would you come and be in our midst by the Spirit at work in these words? Going to rise off the page, the words that I will speak, the words that we will hear. Would you inhabit them? And would you use them to work change in the lives of your people and to work change in the lives of those here who are not your people yet? That is our prayer. We want to see Christ lifted up here. So, Father, would you do that by the power of the Spirit? Exalt the Son. We want to see your church grown. So, Father, would you do that? The power of your Spirit. Work in this body. Work in your people around this valley, around this nation. Cross the earth today on this Lord's Day. Give grace, we pray, for the glory of Christ and for the good of your people. Amen. I have a question for you. I'm wondering. Will you walk out of here today justified? Some here right now in our midst today are not justified, and you need to be. Maybe you're a visitor here today. Maybe you've been coming here for years. Maybe you're a teenager. Now for the first time beginning to think about these things that we're talking about for yourself. Some here are not justified. May that happen to you this morning. Many of us, though, are justified. And my question then to you is, will you walk out of here this morning knowing that you're justified? Walking in justification. What I mean is justification, right standing with God. Not guilty before God. We walk out of here either now, today, newly become not guilty or walking in, experiencing, knowing, understanding, shot through by your not guiltiness. We walk out of here this morning justified. You can. And it would change your life if you did. So we're going to talk about this morning. Justification made possible 
to you. We're going to look at that in Acts chapter 13 this morning. Last week, in the beginning of Acts chapter 13, we saw the beginning of the worldwide missionary movement as, for the first time, Christians are deliberately sent out for the specific purpose of making Jesus an issue and of planting the church where it does not exist and where he is not known. That began last week with the Spirit raising up Barnabas and Paul and sending them out to the island of Cyprus and then leading them from one end of the island all the way to the other, preaching and preaching and preaching, making Christ an issue until they come to the very end where they reach the capital city of Paphos and Paul faces off with this false prophet, Elamus. The gospel has spread all the way to the capital city of Cyprus and then because Elamus stands in the way of what the Spirit wants to do in exalting the word, the Spirit casts him down, moves him aside, lifts up the word in the eyes of the proconsul Sergius, and the gospel is shown to be just as astonishing as it actually is, and he believes. That was last week, and again, my hope this morning is that the gospel would be exalted, would be lifted up in your eyes, and you would see it to be as astonishing as it really is. That justification would not be boring to you. Old hat. But that you would experience it you would know it in your heart, perhaps for the first time, because some here need to know it for the first time. But if you already are justified, that you would live it, that you would know it experientially, and that you would leave here and you would know it Tuesday night and Wednesday morning and Friday afternoon, that it would grip you and change you. It is not just Sunday morning only information. The gospel is life-changing. My hope is that he would lift it up again today, specifically on the issue of justification, and that it would be marvelous to you. So we're going to get at in the middle of Acts chapter 13 this morning. Let me read the passage. Acts 13, verses 13 to 43. Verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So Paul stood up. And motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm he led them out of it. And for about forty years he put up with them in the wilderness And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all of my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, Sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, 
They asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The word of the Lord today. Our passage begins with Paul and his companion setting sail from Paphos. And notice just a little observation here. The order of the names has changed. Previous to this, Luke has always written Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Paul. From here on out, it is now Paul and his supporting cast. Paul's coming into his own. He's taking charge of this. Barnabas is stepping back. So Paul's likely the one that initiated this trip. They leave the capital city of Paphos and sail to the north and they hit what is now mainland Turkey, about the middle of the coastline, about halfway over in Turkey. They land at the city of Perga. And there, John Mark leaves them and goes back to Jerusalem. Now, in this passage, there's no verdict passed on that. Elsewhere, we realize that Paul did not think very highly of John for leaving, but here there's no statement made about that. He just goes, and then the two of them leave Perga and head inland. Now, looking at chapter 14... Verse 25, it seems that on the way back through these cities, that that's the first time that they actually preach in Perga. So it's led a lot of people to speculate, why did they land in Perga but then not preach there and move evidently pretty quickly north into this other city of Antioch, Pisidia? A lot of speculation about that. One theory is that there was disease in the group, perhaps malaria that scared off John Mark and caused them to leave the lowlands and to head into the higher country where there might be a better climate. And that might explain why the book of Galatians, written a few months after this time, Paul there in Galatians says that the reason he first preached to these people was because of a personal sickness. So maybe he's ill when they flee here to try to find a place we can get better, takes them north into this broad province of Galatia, Antioch, Pisidia, where eventually they find their way into a synagogue. Now, the synagogue service that's recounted here is proceeding along relatively common lines. There would have been prayers first, and then the readings of the law and the prophets, probably a teaching section made by the, by the leader of that synagogue. And it seems during that time they sent a message to Paul saying, if there's something that you would like to say, a word of exhortation, feel free, which Paul takes as an opportunity from the Lord. If you hand him a microphone, he finds something to say. And he steps up, and he begins to preach. Now, what, is, what follows in verses 16 to 22 is really just his introduction. This would have been very common information to them, almost creedal. As if, in our Christian setting, if I were to stand up here and you knew that I was filling the spot of the word of exhortation in the order of worship, 
That's my job at this moment. And I stand up and I begin to recite the Apostles' Creed to you. And I were to say that we believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, born of the Virgin Mary, etc., etc., you would say, yes, okay, I know that. He's a visitor, so he's establishing that we're on the same page here, obviously. But he's going somewhere with this. This is not the word of exhortation. This is the intro. Where's he going? He tells this story with an emphasis on God's initiative, on God's grace. Everything he says there, God is the subject of almost every verb in this introduction. It's about God and what he has done. God chose our fathers. God made the people great. God led them out. God bore them, carried them, probably more like a child than like a burden. God carried them to the desert. God destroyed the hostile nations. God gave them the land. God gave them judges. God gave them a king, and then God removed that king and gave them another king, David, who was a good man after God's own heart. And now, you can almost see him, Taking a pause. And now, God has done something else. God has brought the Savior that he promised. Jesus. That's where things begin to get interesting. Up to that point, sure, yeah, of course, uh uh-huh, uh-huh. Jesus. Huh. They've heard about Jesus. Now they're listening. Jesus, the one sent and he recounts the testimony to Jesus made by the apostle, the prophet John, a man that they would have known of and would have known how powerfully he preached repentance. And this man, we hear, this man said, one is coming after me and I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. He recounts the testimony of John, the testimony of the scriptures, citing several passages throughout this, this sermon recounts and ties passages to him. And then finally, he concludes with the word of exhortation, verses 38 to 41. He exhorts them, that is, urges them and calls them, believe. Turn to this Jesus, this sent one. Turn to him, grab hold of him, and in him you will be freed. You will be justified. That's the word in the original. If you're reading the NIV, you'll see it there. You will be justified. That's a legal term. You'll be set free from, declared not guilty of all that you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. Come to him and watch out that you don't resist what God is now doing in Jesus or what the prophets said will happen. He quotes Habakkuk. And points out how when they resisted the word of the Lord before, God did something amazing. He brought the Babylonians in judgment. God will do that again. Don't resist his word. Turn to Jesus. And he's done. And he sees, as he concludes, that he's made an impression. And a number of people want to think more about this. And so he urges them, keep looking into this. That's our text for this morning. Obviously, the vast portion of it is Paul's sermon itself, a little introduction to it, and then most of it's just the sermon. That's what we're going to be looking at today. And next week, I'm going to put it back into the context that we'll see some of the fallout, see what happened, what the result was. This morning, we look at the content of his message, and it is not too much of a stretch to say that the main point of Paul's sermon and the main point of this sermon is the main point of the Bible. It is not a stretch to say that. It is the main point that God is seeking to speak to people. Here in Paul's sermon, here this morning, here it is. God has raised up his Savior to deliver his people from sin. That's what the Bible's about. God acting, God initiating, God doing something, God raising up his Savior to deliver his people from sin. He has always been about something, driving all of history, all of the creation towards some particular thing, a person, Jesus, the sent one. 
He's driving everything towards that person, lifting him up so that everyone can see and everyone can turn to, calling all to give allegiance to this one in whom there is salvation. That's the message of the Bible. That's the message that Paul preaches in that synagogue that day. That's the message that you must hear this morning. God has raised up a Savior so that you can be justified, declared not guilty in his eyes. May that grab a hold of you this morning. We're going to look at three observations from this passage that are going to be pushing us. They're going to build on one another and going to push us towards faith in this one that he has sent. Three observations. Beginning with the first one. Jesus is the one sent to save. Jesus, you might underline Jesus there. That's what Paul's kind of underlining. We know there's somebody coming. He's speaking to a Jewish audience. We know someone's coming. Who? Jesus is the one sent to save. Verse 23, we saw that the sermon turns a corner when he comes to Jesus and he spends the whole rest of time just talking about Jesus. He skipped a thousand years to get to this guy. This one they've heard about but aren't quite familiar with. He spends a fair amount of time in his sermon laying the groundwork, reminding them of the expectation. He quotes several passages, alludes to 2 Samuel 7, the covenant made with David, when he talks about how one from David's line, one from his flesh, he's talking about the Davidic covenant that set up in Israel an expectation. One from the line of David is going to come and rule for our good. He's going to come and in righteousness and justice stretch out his power over us. And second, the, the second psalm quoted down below, that one, when he stretches out his power, it won't just go over us, it will go over all of the nations. The enthronement psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That was a psalm sung whenever a king was set up on the throne in Israel. Time after time. They sung that in hope, but everybody knew it had not been fulfilled because the rest of that psalm says, Ask me and I will give all the nations to you. No king ever ruled over all of the earth, but one would, God said so. Someone from the line of David who would rule in righteousness over all of the earth. This expectation is building and building and building. Isaiah 55 quoted there, because during the exile, it did not look like it was going to happen. The Davidic king was gone. And God promised in Isaiah, I will for sure still bring to you the blessings of David. So they have this expectation, this hope. They're looking for one to come. And Paul says, it's Jesus, the one who was sent. But don't just take my word for it. Listen to the witnesses. And he pulls up John the Baptist. John who said, this one, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And then he pulls up the disciples who were with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. He says, these men have testified to us. These men who saw him. They saw him walk on water. They saw him call forth a dead man out of the grave. They saw him give sight to a blind man. And they saw him castigate those hypocrites, the Pharisees, while showing mercy to the prostitutes and the tax collectors. They saw him hung on a tree, cursed. And they saw him again after he rose and put their fingers in the holes. And they have borne witness to us. He's the one. He pulls together that testimony. And notice the nature of that testimony. It is not. These guys thought about it and became convinced that he was the one. It is not. These guys prayed about it and were persuaded in their minds. It is these men saw him. Verse 31, and for many days he appeared. This is after he was dead. For many days he appeared to them. They saw a dead man alive again. They saw it. 
Conclude what you will from that. That's their testimony to us. It's not an impression. That's an eyewitness of an event. The testimony of Christianity that Paul is recounting here is rooted in history, rooted in fact, not impression on the inside. Radically different. They saw the dead man alive again, and they bear witness to us. Why is that important? Because the huge question in his audience's mind is the cross. Paul's speaking about a sent one who was to come and reign from the throne of David, and in their minds the whole time, but he was crucified. But he was crucified. But he was crucified. No way. Why are they thinking that? Because the Old Testament said, Deuteronomy 21, anyone hung on a tree is cursed by God. And Paul, you're trying to tell me that he's approved by God. God in his word said he's cursed. How can those two things go together? Paul's answer. Actually, guys, the scriptures foretold that too. The scriptures actually said that the Messiah, the coming one, would be cursed by God. That hung on the tree, that's about him. They fulfilled that unwittingly. How do we know? Because he was raised. The resurrection is a huge proof. In his discussion, in our discussion. The empty tomb is significant. The fact of the empty tomb is significant. He quotes Psalm 16. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. Can't be about David. We could sail over to David's tomb and look at his corrupt body right now. Can't be about David. It's about the Davidic one. The one in the line of David that we've been looking for. Who would die but would not be left to see corruption and would come back alive again. Jesus is the one. He's the Messiah. Which is great if we were looking for the Messiah, but we're not. We're not Jews. Who cares? We're not exactly looking for the Messiah. We're not hunting through the Old Testament scriptures trying to figure out which is the guy who's going to match all these things, but we are looking for a messianic Savior. Think about what Messiah means. When Messiah comes, what that means is that the reign of God will stretch over the earth and bring peace. That the reign of God will stretch to the nations and bring joy and end sin and misery and loss. We'll put the pieces together in our broken lives. We'll make sense of things. We'll satisfy us with what we were made for. Relationship with God. We'll reverse what we've all messed up in the world in the fall. We want that. We don't put the name Messiah on it, but we want that. We're all looking for it. We walk through life looking for deliverance, looking for hope, looking for peace, looking for change, looking for righteousness, looking to have everything made right and fixed. We want that. It's in your heart. You want that. Jesus is the one sent to do that. It's Jesus. How? He's underlined Jesus in the first part of this, but he hasn't yet explained much about how. Why? He's made clear that it's not a political deliverer, that it's not some self-actualization, it's not some other coming one, It's not even today our culture's idea of what Jesus is. It's not the Jesus of our imaginations. It's the Jesus of the scriptures, the Jesus Paul preaches. He's made clear that's the Savior. That's the one sent to save. But how? That gets us to the second point. The second observation is that Jesus saves by providing the justification that we could not get by our own works. Jesus saves by doing something, by providing for something, by creating something. Justification. 
something we could not ever get by our own works. Now, justification, that's a a theological word. It's, It's all over the New Testament, in fact. It's a theological word. You'll see it in the NIV, the ESV and the NAS translated as freed from, and that gives you some idea as to what the word means. Originally, it was a legal term. And when you see freed from, you get some idea of which side of the legal ledger this word falls on. It falls on the not guilty side. You have a charge leveled against you, and you are declared not guilty, and you are freed from obligation, freed from the pending punishment, set free, liberated, declared not guilty, righteous. That's what justification is. And we human beings are in desperate need of justification. We, in and of ourselves, by nature, are definitely not not guilty. We are far from that. We stand before the court of God, before our maker and judge, thoroughly guilty. Sinners. Not primarily because we do bad things, though we do. And not primarily because we say bad things, though we do. We stand before God guilty because the law primarily says to us, God's expectation, His law primarily says to us, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with 95% of your being. No. With all of your strength, all, 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 all in totality, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Period. So the law says to us, we stand before that guilty because nothing in us is anywhere near complete and total allegiance to God in heart. Does that mean we don't keep any bit of the law at all? No, in a way, we keep parts of the law. Pick something. And on some level, we keep lots of it. Thou shalt not kill. I've never murdered anybody. In some way, I keep that. But Jesus makes clear, it's talking about far more than that. He drives that into the heart where the law is really shooting, where the law is really aiming at, the heart. What's going on in here? Not just with your hands. The heart is the root. And he says on on murder, if you've been angry at someone in your heart, you've killed him. We're all lawbreakers, left and right, thoroughly, And we cannot fix that by trying harder and trying more thoroughly and working to be better. We cannot be freed from guilt by the law. The law brings up our guilt. Perfection would have freed us from guilt, and we blew that long ago. You've got to understand something. Many of us do. I know, many of us do. But some don't. You've got to understand something, that what you do with your hands is not the chief issue. It matters. Sure, it matters. But what you do with your hands started somewhere in here. What you say with your mouth started somewhere in here. This is what the law is getting after. No other God before me in here, in your heart. And we worship everything under the sun, chiefly ourselves. Self-centeredness, pride, who can deny it? None of us. We're lawbreakers. We're guilty before God. And he is just. He will not tolerate sin. He will punish it. How do you get freed from underneath of the wrath of God? How can you be justified? Not by the law. Only in Christ. Jot down a couple of verses to look at something I'm going to explain, but look at this and read it later. Galatians chapter 3, which parallels much of what Paul's saying here. Same person writing to some of the same sorts of people that he's speaking to. This is happening in the southern part of Galatia, and he writes the book of Galatians several months later. Some similar themes there. Jot down Galatians chapter 3, 
You can look at verse 13. I read it at the beginning of the sermon. I was beginning to pray. You could jot down 2 Corinthians 5.21. I'm going to summarize those verses, though. How does Jesus give to us, make for us justification? By trading something. Galatians 3 says that he became a curse for us. The Corinthians verse says, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf. He became sin, though he wasn't a sinner, so that we might become the righteousness of God. He trades and he gives us righteousness while taking on him our sin. Theological word there, imputation. Something being imputed, or you might say pressed into, given onto. My sin and the curse do me, given onto Jesus, so that when he is hung on the tree, he is cursed by God for me. And then he gives back to me his righteousness so that I stand before God clean. Think of it like two coats. A coat of sin and curse and a coat of righteousness and justification. I take off my coat, put it on him, and he gives me his. And I'm clothed in his righteousness. So God looks at me and says, not guilty. For everybody? For everybody? Without exception? No. The text specifically says, verse 38, everyone who believes is freed. Everyone who believes is justified from everything. You have to believe. We're going to come to that in a second. Pause right here and think about this and marvel at it. This is the gospel, the good news. Testified to by the witnesses who saw Christ, passed on by Paul, now proclaimed by us. It is awesome news. If you have believed, we'll talk about that in a minute, as I said. If you have believed, you stand before God clean. It should blow your mind. Especially if you have any awareness of how dirty you are. If you think, I was clean before, or at least not that bad, you have no idea who you are. You have no idea who God is. If you have just the faintest grasp of what actually lives inside of you, and if you pay any attention to yourself, what you say and how you act, what you think, what you love, what you long for, to realize that all of that has been reckoned to the cross of Christ, and God looks at you as clean, and forgiven and let loose out from under his judgment should blow your mind. What other problems do you have in life compared to that one? And that one has been dealt with. Finally, definitively, once and for all. That should cause you to worship. It should cause you to worship. To rejoice. You're clean, forgiven. Worthy is He. Because though He knew no sin, He was made sin on your behalf that you might become the righteousness of God. Worthy is He who bore your sin on the cross in your place. Worthy of Worship is he. Jesus is the one sent to save. He saves by providing the justification that we could never get by our works. Third observation, trust. This is Paul's exhortation. Trust in this crucified Christ and you will be freed from your sin. That's the appropriate response. Because up to that point, it's just theory. It has not come home to roost in your life yet. Trust. That's why he concludes the exhortation. Believe and watch out that you don't 
diminish this and ignore it and move on. Trust in this crucified and raised Jesus and you will be freed from your sin. That's obviously the reason that he's preaching. Verses 38 and following. Get this, be clear on it. Brothers, pay attention here. Through this man alone, forgiveness is available. Through this man alone, we can be freed. That's the point that he's pressing. So my question, are you going to walk out of here justified? Some here right now are not justified. You aren't. I pray that the Spirit is confirming that to you right now. Because most of the time, most of us are strongly trying to convince ourselves that we're good enough. We spend a lot of energy pushing this aside. Trying to convince myself, I'm a decent guy. I'm okay. I haven't killed anybody after all. I've kept some of the law. You're not. May God the Spirit make that clear to you right now. And may He also make clear to you that justification is sitting right here on the table. Believe. Turn away from trusting your own efforts. You cannot get this by obeying the law. Not the law of Moses, not the law that our society makes up, not the law that you imagine. You cannot get it by your behavior, by your efforts. But you can get it by believing, that is, trusting in Him alone. Faith alone in Christ alone will justify you before God. Believe. Do it right now. Sit in your chair right now and say, God, I give up. I surrender to you. Please forgive me because of the blood of Christ. I trust not a bit in any of my effort, any of my work, but I trust only in him. If what you say is true, I'm stunned by that. Apply it to me, please, though I'm undeserving. Pray. Talk to God right now. You don't have to use those words. Use your own words. He'll hear you. He, he will hear your humble heart and justify you. That's obviously Paul's main point here because he's speaking to a whole room full of people who are not justified. He knows it. They don't. He's telling them and how to be and he's telling them how to be justified. I know though that I'm speaking to a large number of people here who already are justified. And so my question to you is, will you walk out of here knowing it? Not intellectually, experientially. Will you walk out of here walking in justification? That is, walk out of here in your freedom, in your cleanness. The gospel... Interestingly, it's the very same message to Christians as it is to non-Christians. Believe in this crucified Christ, you'll be freed from sin. Same thing to, to Christians. Believe in that crucified Christ, you'll be freed from sin. You'll be freed from what sin does to you, from its temptations and its allurements. You're already free, if you're Christian, you're already freed from its penalty, but you'll be freed from its temptations and its burdens. We have to walk through life thinking about the gospel, internalizing it. Here's a little what I mean. Justification by faith and not by works, if you're Christian, means that you stand before God forgiven, an object of his delight, free from the burden of of striving to earn his approval. That last sentence is an important one. Free from the burden of striving to earn his approval. Ever been around a, a coach or a parent, um, a teacher of some sort that always finds fault? You're, you're an athletic game. You, you hit a home run and you get back to the dugout and the coach says, you ran a little too fast around the bases. Or a little too slow. You get, you get an A on, on the paper, you bring it home and your parent says, your handwriting's a little messy. 
Ever been around somebody like that? Ah. Or to make it worse, do you think of the gospel, do you think of your relationship with God like this? I heard this story written by non-Christians, but religious people, but written by non-Christians who are describing relationship with God. And the, the woman, there's a couple, and the woman is describing it like a load of bricks on my back, crushing the life out of me. Those are her words. Because in her mind, she's thinking and she's been taught to think, there's always something a little more that I can do. God's not completely pleased with me. I could do a little more, a little more, a little more. I sit down on the couch to take a breath. Could have been, could have been doing something useful. Her view of God is that he would say, yeah, you could have. Why weren't you? You see how that would crush the life out of you? Do you think about God like that? I'm talking to Christians here. Do you view God as perpetually, slightly dissatisfied with you? Wanting a little more before he'll say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Now, I need to caution all this. This does not say, when I say, you're free from the burden of striving to earn his approval, I do not mean you are free from having to obey. And I do not mean you are free from doing anything, just go sit on the couch all day long. We have to obey. We want to please him. If he's worthy, he's worthy of our lives, of our sacrifice, of everything. But there is a huge difference between seeking to obey someone, wondering if he approves of you, and seeking to obey someone completely sure that he approves of you. It's a difference, if you've ever been in a bad marriage or known people in a bad marriage, it's a difference between knowing that this person is not leaving, trying to work on your problems, recognizing you have problems. The difference between that and thinking, my, I don't know if my problems are going to, if tomorrow's the day that he leaves or she leaves. So I better shape up. Both cases, you want to work on your problems. This one's filled with fear. If I don't get it right, don't get it right soon enough, don't get it right in large enough degree, it might be over. This one says, because of the sure foundation, I have an environment in which I can grow. How do you view God? We have to work on problems. We have to grow. We have to obey. Sure, absolutely. In a position of delight and approval and freedom, justified, not guilty. You've been freed from the need to strive for his approval. Will you walk in that? This is hard for me. I'm a performer. And it is hard for me to fail and not feel like a failure. And I don't mean just cognitively realize I failed. I mean feel like a failure. Which means it's hard for me to not work something to death so as to avoid failing. Which means I'm working from fear. It's hard for me. Is it hard for you? Maybe you need to think about that for yourself. Maybe you need to think about it for other Christians around you. Because it's just possible that you're the one they're afraid of. It's possible, think of someone that's, that's near you, think of a family member or someone else in the church. It's possible that people walk around you constantly worried about striving for your approval. Or maybe they avoid you because they know that they can't get your approval. Be careful that you don't set yourself up as a higher judge than God. 
If God looks at that brother or sister and says, justified, freed, yes, with problems, but justified, if God looks at that person that way, we better. That changes the dynamic between people. That enables two Christians to talk to each other and one to say, you know, I totally blew it. And the other person to say, yes, you did. And we're okay. Now, does that mean that I never take any action to help you not blow it anymore? Or that we never set up any parameters, that we never strive for excellence? No, of course not. But it means that the attitude, it takes the venom out of it. It releases the venom out of the situation and lets us work and grow, strive for obedience and grow towards holiness without the fear and the angst. God has raised up his Savior to deliver his people from their sins. And if you aren't going to walk out of here justified this morning, it is not because you haven't heard it. I hope you do. If you're not justified, believe. Turn to him and be saved. Be justified. And if you are justified, live it. With yourself and God, yourself and other people, and with other people and you. God has raised up his Savior. Trust him and be freed from your sin. Let me pray. Father, I can call you Father. Many of us here can call you Father because of your initiating grace, adopting us into your family. We were not yours. We were enemies of yours. You made Christ a curse on our behalf and made us your children. So we say, Father, in thanksgiving. And now we pray, Father, would you be at work here in this room now, binding up, sealing onto our hearts your word. Would you be at work here now to save those who do not know you? And would you be at work here to sanctify those who do? Give grace, we pray. Because of Christ, through the Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.